Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for downloading or streaming this episode of the Influencer Economy. It's a good one. This is Ryan Williams. My guest today is Adam Grant, who is a Wharton professor. He's actually the youngest, highest rated teacher at Wharton in the history of their business school, who is the author of the book Give and Take, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. Uh, we had a really fascinating conversation about people in business environments and how some of us are givers, some of us are takers, and some of us are matchers. Uh, Adam's background is in organizational theory and business psychology. He's definitely you know, adding a new layer to the business world because most of us, we think about uh, luck and hard work and talent as the three tenets for making yourself successful in business. But he's adding a new layer, which is giving or taking or matching and how these elements of our personalities affect our businesses and our success in life. I love to hear Adam's research because it helps to crystallize that if you help people in life without expecting anything in return, then good things will happen. So wanted to remind everyone to check us out at InfluencerEconomy.com. You can actually uh, listen to me on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. The podcasting networks would love to hear what you think, so please leave a comment. And you can find Adam Grant at GiveAndTake.com, where you can buy the book. You can see more of his research that he's published. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you so much for, for joining me on The Influencer Economy. Thank you, Ryan. I'd love to hear your book theory and uh, talk a bit more, introducing the idea to the audience about why you came up with the book and, and what your research has shown. Great. It turns out around the world, there are three styles of interaction that show up in every culture and every industry. Giving and taking are the extremes. Takers are the people who are always trying to get stuff from us. They don't like to give back unless they're going to come out ahead. Givers are, for me, not just philanthropists or volunteers, but people who enjoy helping others and often do it with no strings attached. That might be sharing knowledge, mentoring, making introductions, or just showing up early or staying late to support others. Now, most of us hover right in the middle of this spectrum as what I call matchers. So matcher is somebody who tries to keep an even balance of give and take, quid pro quo. I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And the book, Give and Take, is really about the fact that we all have moments of giving, taking, and matching. Your style is how you treat most of the people most of the time. And which of those styles is least effective and most effective? And what's fascinating is that givers are both the most successful people, but they're also the least successful people. And they also fall victim to crimes more often than, than matchers or takers. So that was really fascinating to hear. I'd love for you to uh, you know, enlighten us about how th this works out in the spectrum for the givers. Yeah, I was intrigued by that, that if you look across the productivity of engineers, the grades of medical students, and the revenue of salespeople, the givers are the worst performers. They, you know, they're so busy helping other people solve their problems that they run out of time and energy to get their own work done efficiently and effectively. And that leads a lot of people to think the takers and matchers must be the best performers. But the data showed that actually the givers had the best results too. That, yeah, they were overrepresented among the engineers who were the least productive and the medical students who got the worst grades and the salespeople with the lowest revenue. But they were also overrepresented at the top of each of those metrics. And so if you're a giver, you had a greater chance of finishing last and a greater chance of finishing first. The takers and the matchers seem to cluster more often in the middle of the success metrics. 
And you know, there are a lot of factors that differentiate the successful from the failed givers, but the, the biggest one by far is just the willingness to recognize that you don't have to put other people first all the time. So failed givers tend to be self-sacrificing, and they're always putting other people's interests ahead of their own. Successful givers help a lot without asking for anything in return, but they're not going to do that in a way that compromises their own well-being or their own goals. And, and you're a giver, so have you ever struggled with what you just said, where they're compromising their own goals as a giver in your life? Well, Ryan, first of all, it's kind of you to say that, but I don't feel like it's my place to judge my own style. I can tell you that I have the oh, values. Come on. Of... We, we can no, judge no, your no, style. No, we, can, we can judge it. It's fine. I think, I think that well, just in our, in our brief interactions online, you've shown that you're a giver and watching Willie Geist piece on you when he called you a celebrity, it seems that you are spending your time throughout the day helping people. I, I read an article you work on Saturdays. Um, and generally speaking, like what, when you, what's, let's not try to judge you, but what's your day to day like in your, your week? Um, do you have enough time in the day to do what you do? No, look, I, I, I care a lot about being helpful as much as I can, but we all have to prioritize for me. It's, it's family first, student second, colleagues, third, and everyone else fourth. And you know, that, that means I work from home a couple days a week. Um, I, uh, you know, I try to block out as much time as I can for, you know, for family time. And then, you know, all the remaining time goes to students first and foremost. And that means that if you were to ask my, some of my professor colleagues, I don't think they would see me as, as nearly as helpful or generous as a lot of the students that I teach because I didn't become a professor to try to inspire professors. <laughs> I became a professor because I wanted to make a difference in the lives of students. And, you know, that's a group that, that's always going to get, you know, my, the most, I guess, the most significant attention from me. Um, but, you know, what it, what it means is that in a teaching semester, um, I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll set up, you know, somewhere between four and six hours of office hours in a given week. And, you know, that'll be three to four hours at a time, typically where, you know, I'm just available for any students who are looking for me. And that way they don't have to book an appointment six weeks in advance if they have a question. Uh, hopefully I'm there to, you know, to give career advice, to make introductions, to have interesting conversations about the material and about their lives. Interesting. And then why, why teaching? I, I know you do consult for businesses, but did you have a moment where you decided to go into the private sector versus teaching or did you always want to get into the teaching profession? No, it was actually something that, that I didn't discover until uh, most of the way through college. I was looking for a career where I could help others and, and have a meaningful impact. And when I thought about the jobs that had meant the most to me, I had some exceptional teachers and professors who really changed the way that I saw the world. And I guess I became pretty excited to pay that forward. Yeah, one thing for the book I'm writing and the research is that teaching is, a, is now a huge part of the professional world. And whether you're a blogger or you, you know, to put your POV out there to help and you're a venture capitalist. Or uh, I interviewed a guy named Freddie Wong who just raised $900,000 on Kickstarter for a video game high school uh, interactive media uh, web series that has over 65 million views. And he did a teaching academy as one of his perks for the crowdfunding campaign. And it was an intensive, uh, you know, two-day weekend and it was $1,500, and he sold out with them. Where do you think teaching fits in the business world now? I think one of the, the signs of a great leader is actually being a great teacher. One of the leaders I've been most impressed by over the past few years is the CEO of Estee Lauder. His name is Fabrizio Freda. And 
he's somebody who's widely respected by his employees, by shareholders, board members. It's hard to find someone who is not just enamored and impressed with, with, the, with his skills. And when you look at his background, it's really interesting. He started his career as a teacher. Uh, he, he actually was a business school professor. It was his first major job. And although he transitioned out of academia and worked his way up Procter & Gamble before you know, finally becoming the CEO of Estee Lauder, he has always maintained that teaching is the single most important part of his job, that he's trying to educate every employee he works with. He's working on mentoring. He's trying to pass knowledge around so that everybody can enhance their knowledge and skills. And I do think that plays a central role in becoming a great leader. Okay. That's, that's actually really fascinating to hear that if you're a leader, you teach, you have to inspire people to learn. And then another fascinating thing about the book I thought, well, I, I'm using the word fascinating a lot because it actually is a really great read. People should uh, check it out. It's at giveandtake.com. Um, it's available. I, I got the e-reader version of it. I know you have physical copies. And you also, you put uh, the first chapter online, which is about David Hornick. And I loved the the excerpt about his lobby conference and how he's opening doors for other people and he's not worried that he's limiting himself in his business contacts. So I'd love to, to talk more about the conference and his, and his overall philosophy about business. Uh, I think David Hornick is such an interesting example of a successful giver. You know, if, you, if you think about what he does as a venture capitalist, he's, he's basically doing the same work that we all watch on Shark Tank every Friday night. Yeah. And you know, he's, he's meeting with lots of entrepreneurs and trying to get them to, to take his money so that then you know, he can uh, make wise investments. And one of the, the historic trends in venture capital, especially had in Silicon Valley, is you protect your network very closely and carefully because if you discover a great blue chip entrepreneur, you don't want any other venture capitalist to know about them. Well, David kind of violated that rule and said he'd been going to conferences for years and you know, he's, a, he's a very outgoing, engaging guy. And he would just sit listening to talking heads for three days and he was bored out of his mind. And he said the greatest thing about going to conferences was, was being in the lobby and having the conversation oh, no spontaneously with, with people that you would meet. He said, why don't we have a whole conference that's just that, that literally reproduces the lobby? Only it's a couple days and there are no you know, for sort of formal presentations. So he ends up building that. And what's crazy to a lot of venture capitalists is that he actually invites rival firms. He also invites the entrepreneurs that are up and coming. And he's more or less opening doors to all of his competitors to say, hey, there's somebody I discovered. You should invest in them instead of me. Right. But David really believes that the world is not zero sum. It's not a fixed pie. And he says, I want to I prove that you, if you want to be successful, you do not have to do that at somebody else's expense. And that in the long run, if he brings more people together, if he creates more opportunities for everyone to succeed, that there's just going to be enough to go around. And what, what I think is, is quite powerful about David's story is that he has an extraordinary track record for getting entrepreneurs to sign with him. He'll, you know, he'll allow them to, to shop around, work with lots of other investors on possible deals. But at the end of the day, because he extends himself so much for other people, the reputation he has is, is golden. And he really earns the trust of the people he works with by putting other people's interests you know, in the short run seemingly ahead of his own. And, and how do people do that in the office? Because that's where something I've had ideas taken from me where I've trusted someone, which I think is a giver or someone who's a taker. You know, you feel like the office, you have to have your guard up. But 
I feel like in the in the real world when I'm networking, I can help other people because there is no zero sum game. And what advice do you have for professionals if they are givers to protect themselves? Well, I think the what you see among failed givers who sink to the bottom is that they try to help all the people all the time with all the requests. And that's just not sustainable for any mere mortal. What successful givers do is they prioritize. They're thoughtful and selective about who, how, and when they help. The who, I think, is clear. Right? Be really cautious when helping takers. And you may actually want to become more of a matcher when dealing with takers, holding them accountable for paying it back or paying it forward so they, take, they don't take advantage of you. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of failed givers go to the opposite extreme, though. They say, look, I've been burned by a taker one too many times, so now I'm only going to surround myself with givers. That's a mistake, too. If you only interact with givers, you don't get as much help as if you allow matchers into your life, too. Matchers are the ones who are really motivated to pay it back, right? Who are keeping score, who feel like they owe you after you've helped them. A tit for tat. Exactly. And I, I'm not saying, Ryan, that you should go around and say, let me, let me find all the matchers I can and then strategically help them so they'll reciprocate. What I am saying, though, is that if you, if you restrict your interactions to only givers, then you'll miss out on some of the people who are most motivated to protect you and to help you. Because um, matchers believe in fairness. And so they're the ones who are warning you against right. takers and also court, sort of propping you up. Those people are fascinating. I call them ankle biters <laughs> Be, because they remember every favor they give you and then have to <laughs> remind you. And then sometimes the favors aren't even that great. And so you feel like they're impressing you with favors that actually weren't that helpful because they think they're doing what is the right thing as a matcher, um, which is another way this book is enlightening because this is a new business way of thinking. And what kind of, when you, when you wrote it, like I believe that people with big ideas, they, they lead new categories and they help shape and define them. They don't necessarily have to be the first to think about thinking like this, but they are a leader. And how did you come to this category? I know it's been 10 years in the making, um, but, but where was the moment when you thought that this was going to be a big idea? Uh, the easy answer to that is you stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, you know, I, I, I spent most of grad school and a lot of the next few years reading through all this research on you know, what are the consequences of helping others? How do you do that productively? And what was fascinating was, and now I'll, I'll describe something as fascinating. It's my turn. Yeah. <laughs> what was, it's the buzzword really, of the day. There you go. What, what I was fascinated by anyway was that there were these three styles of interaction. They had different labels in different bodies of research, but they kept coming up over and over again. Uh, so I, I had colleagues in organizational psychology who had, who had studied these styles in terms of your expectations of your employer. You know, are you willing to give more than you get? Do you feel like you have to have a self-serving balance? Or, you know, do you try to make things fair and square? And then, you know, all the way over in, in cultural anthropology and social psychology, Alan Fisk had, had gone around the world, even to some tribes that had had no contact with the industrialized West, and discovered that these styles were alive and well there as well. And, uh, you know, I thought, gosh, th th there's something powerful about these approaches to interactions if they turn out to be that universal. And, and that was one of the things that really crystallized that perspective for me. When you were at Harvard, did you feel like this was something like organizational theory or business psychology? Is, is, was that an interest of yours? Were you always fascinated by how, how people interacted? Yeah, I got hooked on it right away. Uh, when I remember arriving in college and thinking that I was interested in psychology and physics. I, got, I guess I was, I was kind of motivated to understand how the world worked better. 
But I quickly discovered that psychology was much more of a newborn science than physics was and that I had a better shot of contributing something of value there uh, with, with all of my own limitations. And I also just, I was increasingly intrigued by the social world and you know, what, what behavioral science could do to improve the quality of all of our lives. And I, I think very early on, I, I found that there were great studies out there that were collecting dust in journals. And that if we could take this knowledge into the workplace, where many people spend the majority of their waking hours, that that might be a, a meaningful way to, to try to make all of our lives a little bit less miserable. And is your life less miserable now? Uh, you know, I think it's, it's less and more. Right? There, 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 there is some truth to ignorance is bliss. Uh, there, you know, every once in a while, you discover something in research that you wish you didn't know. But at the same time, you know, I think that the, there, there's something about the examined life that even when it's not always pleasant in the short run, in the long run, I think that it, it does add a lot of meaning and purpose. What is the most miserable part of your day just now? Like what kind of research are you getting that you're applying to your day and you're like, oh, I know too much? Oh, I think that one of the things that, that happens a lot is you, you read these studies, for example, that kind of look at why some people get away with being takers. And that, make, that makes me so mad. I know. It's, it's, that, that, that's why we all need matchers, right? Because match, <laughs> matchers just feel like it's their mission in life to punish takers. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's good for, for everybody else. So You're reminding you know, me of the, a lot of old bosses. <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm having, glad, I'm having glad a miserable you said moment. Old. Yeah, exactly. Old bosses, not current bosses. But, you know, I think that, that there are these sneaky ways that takers get ahead, right? They, they kiss up and kick down. Uh, and they're, they're very good at being, at faking generosity when they're dealing with powerful people. But then they let their guard down when dealing with peers and subordinates. Yeah, like their family or... <laughs> you see these people that have awesome relationships, they're dad of the year, they're you know, best men at people's weddings, um, but then you put them in a different environment in the office and you're like, wait a second here, um, this is not really, I'm not in control anymore. So what, what kind of advice do you have for us? I know you get this a lot, but like when you're talking to Google and you meet with people or you're consulting with companies, like what's, what are some common pieces of advice or questions you get like, to help their businesses get better in the long run? Well, one of the, the big questions that comes up a lot is, is how do I build a culture of successful givers? You know, where, where one, people are motivated to help, but also two, when they do that, they end up succeeding as opposed to failing. Well, I think that most people, you know, when, it, when, we, when that topic comes up, they say, well, if I want a culture of successful givers, I need to hire a bunch of givers. I would say not so fast. It's nice to have the right people on the bus, but it's much more critical to keep the wrong people off the bus. Mm -hmm. So there's some research that I did not get into in the book. I should have in retrospect, but showing that, that the negative impact of a taker on a culture can be double to triple the positive impact of a giver on a culture. Psychologists have talked about this for a long time. It's called often bad is stronger than good. And you can, you, we can all see this play out, right? You put one taker in a team and everybody's paranoid. One bad apple sort of spoils the barrel. But you put one giver in a team and you don't have this mass increase in generosity. 
Right? More often, people are like, oh, great, there's a giver. Let me give that person all my work to do. <laughs> and so one of the things I spent a lot of time working with organizations on over the past year is, is devising some techniques to, to identify and screen out takers in the hiring process so that you're left with givers and matchers. And if there are no takers, the givers are more generous because they don't have to worry about what's going to happen to them. And the beauty of matchers is they follow the norm. In the presence of givers, matchers become givers. So that's a big area of focus these days. This is incredible because uh, this, and I'm a big sports fan, and there's no way to quantify the data around chemistry on teams. And you see sometimes they pick, teams pick up free agents or they trade a, a good locker room player, and the infrastructure of the team crumbles. And uh, are you a basketball fan at all? Of course. Uh, Andrew Bynum was just released from the Indiana Pacers. And the whole team, like Roy Hibbert, who was a, a competing center, actually went off in the playoffs. But how do you quantify chemistry in a sports locker room? Oh, gosh. You know, I think that this is something we all struggle with because these styles are fluid, right? You, you do find people who are just so extreme on the, you know, on the giving or taking ends of the spectrum that they don't mix up their styles very often. But, you know, there are people who, you know, were a taker. I, you know, somebody who was a taker on one team and then they're a matcher on another team, and then they're a giver on another team, depending on the relationships they build with their coach and their teammates. But I do think that it's absolutely essential for a coach and a team captain to identify players who may be very talented but have a taker mentality and get them to think about how can they put the team first. And as you know from uh, how carefully you've, you've been reading, uh, there's a great example of this from the old Portland Trailblazers. Uh, Stu Inman, when he drafted players, uh, he built the, the late 70s championship team with a bunch of scrappy guys that nobody else thought about drafting in the NBA. Uh, and then he put together the Clyde Drexler, Jerome Kersey uh, group of, of sort of, again, undervalued players in the 80s. And what Inman did was he actually assessed not just what is this person's ability, but also will he use his talent for the good of the team? Right? Is he willing to show up at practices that are not at the most accommodating hours? Is he willing to develop his rebounding skills or become you know, exceptional at steals, even if that's not the position or the skill set that brings the most glory? And I think that we could do a much better job evaluating those, okay, does this person put the team first uh, types of, of habits. I feel like this could be a new data set. or not? It's hard to quantify, but they have a Sloan conference at MIT for data, and there are people who are analyzing basketball and how you quantify inbounds, passes, and people that hustle on the floor, people that block, alter shots. Um, have you ever spoke at the Sloan MIT conference? I have not. I've, I've heard wonderful things about the conference, but I think that unfortunately, you know, we, we've only scratched the surface of how to use big data in sports. You know, sort of in a, in a post-moneyball era, there are many, many questions waiting to be explored, and it makes sense that data scientists start with the ones on which data already exists. Right. Uh, but I think that there are creative ways that we could devise to figure out, okay, which, you know, which skills are critical to team effectiveness but not normally rewarded in professional sports, and then how do we spot those? But I will say, Ryan, we can, we can do this in, in any industry, in every profession. And to take this back to our, uh, our mutual friend Willie Geist here, uh, one of the things that Willie pointed out in the world of, of entertainment is that you can often identify the takers by how they treat the makeup artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody puts their best totally. foot forward with the show host. But it's, you know, it's, it's what is your interaction with somebody who you think is not important. 
that really tends to reveal more of your true colors. It's like the old adage that the best CEOs know the names of the janitors. There you go. But I, I think in closing, I'd love to just to get a tidbit of information from you about like people changing, which is a, an idea that if you're a taker, to become a giver. And what kind of environments can people set up in offices or really in, in life to help takers understand the other perspective? I think the, the first thing that takers need to recognize is that the world is not zero-sum. And it is often true that in the long run, what goes around comes around, which is in a way a matters theory of why givers succeed. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of takers have a, a short-term mentality and they believe that I have to come out ahead in every interaction in order to be successful. And in a connected world that's dominated by teamwork, by service roles, by reputations following us on social media, that's less and less true. And I guess the, the first thing that I always like to say to a taker is, it would be interesting if you gathered some reputational feedback to find out how the people that you've crossed paths with before perceive you. And you know, what they think of you, how they would interact with you, would they be willing to recommend you as a hire or a business partner or as a service provider? And oftentimes, takers discover that when they look in the mirror that way, they don't like the reflection staring back at them. Interesting. Well, that's good. That's a, that's a scary thing to do, to get feedback from your peers or your, your cohorts. I think so, too. But the, the good news is it's actually not as hard as most people think to be a giver. Uh, my, probably my, my favorite simple way to move in that direction is from the entrepreneur Adam Rifkin, who himself is a, an extremely successful giver started a few companies, uh, first one was funded at $50 million, and spends inordinate amounts of time trying to help other people start their businesses. What Adam says is you do not have to be Mother Teresa or Gandhi to be a giver. And in fact, that's probably not the right way to start. What he recommends is just doing a few more five-minute favors every week, which is just a, a small way of adding large value to other people's lives. And Adam's favorite is to make introductions. For the past 12 years, he's made three introductions every day. And you know, it's a very bite-sized chunk of his time that he's investing in other people, but often life-changing for the entrepreneurs that he connects. And he's even accidentally set up a few marriages. That's great. And so I guess the, re- the question to reflect on here, you know, if you feel like you're a taker or you know someone who is, is to say, all right, what's a way of helping that I enjoy and excel at that doesn't cost me a lot, but might actually be extremely helpful to other people? That's great. That's a fantastic note to end on. I've, I actually uh, have used his site Panda Whale before, and he's, oh. al- he's always giving knowledge out. And I, I found that on Twitter, and so when I read him in the book, it was awesome to hear that he is a giver because I find karma is his Twitter handle. And, he, uh, he certainly has found karma, hasn't he? Thank you so much for, for joining me on the Influencer Economy. It's my pleasure. Great to chat with you. 